0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 84. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And I hope uh, that everybody out there is staying safe, staying inside, only going out for the absolute essentials, food, beer, toilet paper (laughs) and paper towels yes
1: please because i don't want to do this anymore
0: yeah do us all a favor if you don't need to go outside or if you don't need to go to the store just stay put
1: stay where you are and don't have parties in your backyard
0: yes we live on the third floor of a house so we kind and we're just off the corner lot so we kind of have the cat, especially from the studio. We have the catbird seat of, and I I'm just counting, we're at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 houses. Because this is Long Island, after all. So we're all kind of built on top of each other. So we could see 11 backyards from where we are. And we know who's partying. And we know who's partying. Not to sound like we're creeping on you, but we know. Please stop.
1: Yes, and, I would like to go back to Disney World.
0: Yeah. Because we're supposed to go in October for not so scary. So I'd like to actually have that happen.
1: I'm not worried about October, but like if this goes into May, I'm going to lose my mind. And and we're fortunate because we have this podcast. Yeah. Like we we have an activity that we can do and plan for and you know, this does take up a chunk of our week, but like I'm going to start to lose my mind. At least
0: the weather's getting nicer we can go out in the yard we can barbecue, we can do some yard work it's just something but for the rest of you I've I literally Jackie and I this weekend watched somebody have a party and share a bottle of booze and when I say share a bottle of booze, I do not mean I passed it to you and you poured it in a glass and then you passed it to that person and you poured it glass taking it straight from the bottle during a pandemic this is not social distancing. This is social Darwinism. And as (laughs) somebody else told me, we're going to see if natural selection takes its course. And that's the most I will say on this for the rest of the show. But in the meanwhile, why are we here today? Well, we're here every Tuesday to talk about a Disney film. Specifically, though, we're here to talk about James and the Giant Peach. Because this is celebrating its 24th birthday this week. I ask this question a lot when we start an episode. Yay or nay? Staple in your home?
1: Not a staple. Uh, We rented this one, actually. Didn't see it in theaters, but it was one of those. I mean, obviously, it's a book, so it was a popular title. We were familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But I remember renting it.
0: So we didn't see it in theaters. We did rent it. We fell in love with it, and if I remember correctly, it found its way into our Easter basket that year.
1: Oh, cute. Uh,
0: Or the following year. Whatever year it came out on VHS, which would have been the year after, um, wore the VHS out. Wow. Wore the tape out. And I'm sure a lot of people who have been with us for a while think I'm going to be predisposed to being very harsh on the film. Because, while not directed by, it is produced by my not-so-favorite director, outside of Batman, Tim Burton. Um, (laughs) uh, I like some of his early stuff, but listen, he gets really formulaic. And he has a lot of little predictable symbols and tropes. And this movie is not shy of a couple of those. We'll get into it as we break the movie down. Um, But he did not direct it. He produced it. But obviously, when you look at the movie, and anybody that's seen the movie knows, it's stop motion. So this is three years, I believe, after Nightmare Before Christmas. And you're starting to see that kind of swing with Burton doing the stop motion because after he did this, he did Corpse Bride, and then he did um, Frankenweenie, which we talked about in October of this past year. You can go back and listen to that. Um, So obviously, knowing that Burton started with Disney... He has an appreciation for animation, but he really does have an appreciation for that stop-motion claymation. And actually, you started seeing a lot of films that were kind of taking that approach. Chicken Run with, uh, I think Mel Gibson was in that movie, came out a few years after that. I want to say that this was sort of still at the beginning of that stop-motion trend in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, well, he uses a couple of different forms of animation in this because obviously he does the stop motion, but then um, he he does that, the cutout yeah. as well. Um, yeah, he pulled out all his stops for this one.
0: Yeah. Does it hold up? Is it any good? We're going to get into that right now. But first, the plot of the film. James and his family live in a lighthouse by the sea but plan on eventually moving to New York City as James finds out on his birthday. Turns out it's going to be the last birthday he has with his parents because a rhino descends from the sky, killing his parents and forcing James to live with his abusive aunts, Sponge and Spiker. James makes a paper lantern using the birthday candle that he had from his final birthday with his parents and he sends it away um he took his uh, travel brochure to new york city he drew on it and then he sent it away um well the next day a mysterious man brings james his paper lantern back but this time it's filled with magical crocodile tongues that he promises will make his dreams come true he tells james not to let the Crocodile tongues out or disappear as they will use their magic on the first thing that they come into contact with and then the old man vanishes well as James is walking back to his house he trips spilling the tongues all over the lawn as they vanish into the ground sponge and spiker come outside to achieve, uh to who retrieve James and they notice that a peach is growing on their tree a tree that has never uh, had any fruit on it in the past. The peach grows to an enormous size, so Sponge and Spiker lock James in the house and decide to set up a sideshow attraction and charge people to see the giant peach, which proves to be very profitable. When James goes out to clean the yard that night, he discovers one last crocodile tongue, which jumps into a piece of the peach that James is starting to eat. A hole opens up on the side of the peach. James climbs inside and he changes form. This is where that uh, claymation comes in because it does start as live action. So he changes form into that claymation and he meets an earthworm, a spider, a centipede, a glowworm, a ladybug, and a grasshopper who are now human-sized. They are all tired of dealing with and living amongst Sponge, and Spiker, and decide that they're all going to leave. Eventually, it is decided upon that they will go to New York. The centipede cuts the peach loose, and they roll down the hill, off a cliff, and into the ocean. While floating, James devises a plan to hook onto the seagulls flying above them to help them fly the peach to New York, and he uses Miss Spider's webs as a net However, a mechanical shark launches an attack on the peach as it's trying to prevent them from leaving. They eventually defeat the shark and fly away with the seagulls. They begin to starve, but they realize that they can eat the peach to stay alive. The next day, the centipede, or as he's calling himself, Commodore, falls asleep while navigating, and they wind up either at the north of the South Pole. They're very cold. They don't know exactly where they are. So the grasshopper tells them that they need a compass to navigate their way out of the situation and get back on track. So they dive into the icy water to retrieve a compass from a shipwreck. A gang of skeleton pirates come to life and attempt to fight them off. But they get the compass and find their way back on track. After realizing how close they have become as a family, they see that they have arrived in New York City. But the rhino arrives to put a stop to their plans. James couldn't save his parents, but he is determined to save his friends. He tells the rhino that the rhino isn't real and he isn't afraid of him, which in essence defeats the rhino, but not before the spider webs are cut from the peach, sending the peach crashing uh, to the top of the Empire State Building. James returns to human form, but none of the insects are in sight. Rescue crews get James and the Peach off of the Empire State Building just in time for Sponge and Spiker to arrive and take him and the Peach home. James tells everybody how he got to New York with the insects, and of course nobody believes him. He also exposes Sponge and Spiker for being abusive. So to shut him up and to prove him wrong, naturally, they grab axes off of a fire truck and attempt to attack James because they're not abusive at all. But the insects appear, and using Miss Spider's webs once again, they capture Sponge and Spiker, who are assumably shipped off to jail. James now lets everyone eat the peach, and he and his friends, to go on and live a wonderful life in New York City using the Peach Pit as the frame for their home. The one thing that stands out in terms of the typical Burton trope, other than some of the designs of the characters and those washed-out colors, the crooked house on the top of the hill that he lives in with sponge and spiker
1: with the crooked tree on the property it's
0: straight out of beetlejuice
1: well here's the thing this was still pretty early on in burton's career so we can't necessarily call them tropes yet this was back when it was still a style that we all appreciated And, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, we did mention it before. He produced this along with Denise DeNovi, who they both worked on Ed Wood together. They both did Edward Scissorhands together. Um, She also did Heathers, which is not a Burton film or a Disney film, but it's a rad movie. So it's worth noting. It's so good. Um, It's an amazing dark comedy. But anyway... um, this is the same situation as Nightmare Before Christmas where Burton basically slapped his name and his style on it and Henry Selleck is the director. Right. Um, So you do see some of the typical Burtonisms in this film. But, you know, I'm sitting there watching it and for me, one of the things that I had to start separating in my mind is that, like, all of this weird stuff, like a rhino descending from the heavens, is actually not Burton weird. Right. It's Roald Dahl weird. And... The other thing, you know, to keep in mind, too, is that I feel like Burton was the perfect producer for this because so many of the Roald Dahl book adaptations got sugarcoated, like Matilda, so coated. um... Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman play her her parents in the film and compared to the book, they, are I mean, they're horrible in the film, but the book is so much worse. And same with um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. The stuff with the grandparents in the beginning, that's all horrible and dark and the movie softens it quite a bit.
0: Yeah. In fact, Roald Dahl's widow said that he would have been very happy with how this film turned out. And and actually, I believe that she also said that this was one of the best of the film adaptations because I loved Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, obviously based on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those books, extremely dark. Matilda, extremely dark, but that was Roald Dahl. He was sort of ahead of his time with those dark contemporary sort of stories, you know, adapted into children's books. But I mean, I think he drew a lot of influence from the brothers Grimm. Remember there was a time, you know, many, many years ago when children's books and especially a lot of those fairy tales, they were not light and fluffy and they weren't the flowery princess that you've seen in so many Disney films. They were, a Lot darker, they were a lot scarier. We talked about um, in the original Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket dies in the book. Um, obviously, not the case in the Disney film, but there's just a lot that has been sugarcoated. And I agree, I think that the style of writing between Roald Dahl and Tim Burton are so similar and i think the style is so similar because even if you look at the illustrations in those roll doll books not that there's a ton of it per mm-hmm. se but you can see where i think burton drew a lot of influence from that
1: definitely yeah like that very like spindly looking yes. like almost stick figures yeah um like, think how um, Jack Skellington looks. That's right. that's really, yeah, very similar to the Roald Dahl illustrations. I'm thinking specifically of the BFG, actually. I remember yes. the illustrations in that book very clearly. Um, yeah, and they drew um, Sophie, I think is her name, uh, the little girl in that mm-hmm. book. And, um, yeah, very, very much like a Burton drawing.
0: So, clearly, this is a match made in heaven to have Tim Burton involved in this. And where in the past I have slammed the Burton-esque style, because remember, I don't know if I've told you this on oh the show. Oh my god. <laughs> he doesn't have a style. Where I he have swears it, he doesn't. Where I have slammed it before, it absolutely works here, the same way it worked for Nightmare Before Christmas. But what's interesting about this is you've seen him You've seen his take on stories that are not his. Mm-hmm. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is horrendous.
1: Awful. Awful.
0: Planet of the Apes is horrendous.
1: I like Planet of the Apes. Oh,
0: God. No. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. This is an adaptation of something that is not his, that, without spoiling my full review, he gets so much of it right. Mm. And... I go so far as to say that, for the most part, this is probably his best film adaptation of something that is not actually his. I think Batman is number one, because he didn't conceptualize that character. Right. I think this is probably number two, Pee-wee's Big Adventure number three. Because Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a great movie but it's not his character that's paul rubens that created that character but tim burton worked in harmony to make those three movies work very well to take ips that were not his not his idea not his concept not his story and make them work very well
1: but this was early on in his career and this is w- why he was so sought after was right. you know for those Visions and for his, you know, that that specific style, which now it's gotten completely played out because he hasn't changed it up enough. Right. But this did make me appreciate and really miss the days where he was just so on fire and, you know, before all of this CGI stuff that he does now with Alice in Wonderland took over. Right.
0: So let's get back into the story here. Um, The rhino... So you never really find out, I mean, I guess it is assumed that the rhino is more internal than anything else because James stands up to it at the end of the film saying you're not real, you're not a real rhino. It doesn't necessarily explain why his parents were killed by something imaginary though. So it leads you to believe, was there something else that took his parents away? They lived in the lighthouse by the sea. Was it a hurricane? Was it a storm? What exactly was it? Were they sick? It? You never really find right, out. Right,
1: and the rhino is a metaphor for the dark force or whatever it is that took them. But at the same time, you know what? They found coronavirus in a tiger this week. So uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, who were who we to say? What's too crazy?
0: Yeah, at this point. Um, But what I like about... What I like about... I do like the metaphor. Um, Sure. I I do appreciate the metaphor. I love how it's stylized in the film. It's, It's a dark figure. I mean, you can clearly see it's a rhino, but it's never really that clear. You see the rhino's eyes. You see the horn. But it really is sort of just smoke in a dark cloud. It's like the black smoke from lost which we just finished um
1: but it's actually smoke and mirrors right so i can
0: appreciate the the metaphor i like the lightning i think it is physically imposing i think it is very scary what i like most about it though is that sponge and spiker have weaponized the rhino (laughs) because they will take every opportunity to remind him That the rhino was never caught and it's going to kill you if you don't listen to us.
1: I think that's extremely, extremely relatable because, of course, like all parents do it. They tell their kids some sort of lie that makes something seem, you know, like the stove is the devil's hands. Don't touch it or something like that. So that, you know, it keeps you in line. But you're right. They take that one step further by weaponizing this rhino. I also like that we've, you know, the rhino is where you first start to see the stop motion come in because up until this point it's still all live action in the beginning and yeah. I like that they started it off that way um because it does sort of play with the idea of like what's actually in James's head and what's what's really happening to him um
0: going back to that opening scene as well because so much of this movie is in stop motion not a ton of it is in live action i want to point out that stylistically what I really like about this. And I think that to a certain extent, a younger audience is not going to appreciate it. It is so clear that the live action, specifically that opening scene with the lighthouse, it is so clearly done on a soundstage. Oh, for sure. It's not, and and it's not subtle about it either. You can tell that the lighthouse that he is supposed to be hundreds of feet away from, he's maybe six feet away from. And the beach that they're sitting on is maybe all of five or six feet long. Yeah, there's like a couple of rocks behind them. Yeah. But I love that. I think that they did that intentionally because this movie is sort of a period piece. It takes place, you know, when you eventually see New York City. Um... It's very kind of primitive Manhattan, Mm -hmm. where the Empire State Building at that time is still the tallest building in the world. Right. So, this is going back a very long time. So, what I like about it is that I feel like not only are they drawing influence from the time period in terms of the storyline with the Empire State Building being this massive marvel. Mm Mm-hmm. But I feel like they were drawing influence from films of that time. Primitive films, practical effects, sound stages, building models. And I think that they took that and they put it into this film intentionally. Is what I'm saying making sense to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're intentionally letting you know we're on a primitive sound stage because I feel like they were drawing influence from cinema at the time that the movie was supposed to be taking place.
1: Well, I think that's also a nod to Burton's production skills, too, because that's what he was raised on, and that's what he was most strongly influenced by was those early monster movies. Right. Where, you know, they built a a big scary monster, but, you know, something like Godzilla, where it's destroying the town. Obviously, you know it's not really destroying Tokyo and it, now it does look very primitive right. back then it looked incredibly scary and realistic yeah it's but a guy I in think, a suit
0: knocking over yeah. foam core board buildings
1: exactly so I think he's playing a little bit with that but I also think that um it's got a little bit of like the Wizard of Oz thing happening where obviously you know Life is so dull until, you know, Dorothy steps into Oz and it's in Technicolor. Um, so I think, you know, it's just reinforcing how bad James's life is. And it's also playing with the idea of we don't necessarily know if this is really happening to him or not.
0: Right. How much of it is is in his own mind. Exactly. So he moves on to live with Sponge and Spiker. I want to talk about Sponge and Spiker. Yes,
1: please. Anastasia and Drizella, you mean?
0: Sure, I love I love these two characters. I think that they are underappreciated villains in the Disney canon because I feel like this movie had its time. I think it had its target audience, and I think once the target audience grew up and grew on from the movie, it it kind of it never it never grew. It never, it never moved on with modern audience. I feel like this movie is sort of stuck in its time period. and I Yeah, because
1: I don't even know that you can call it a cult classic.
0: No, it was a massive hit. But it was a massive hit for its time. Right. It hasn't progressed the way that A Sleeping Beauty or A Nightmare Before Christmas or A...
1: Or like a goofy movie. Yes, it was a hit back then, but like people are rediscovering it.
0: Yeah, that's not really happening with James and the mm. Giant Peach, and I feel like that's why Sponge and Spiker are forgotten about and underappreciated. Because I, I said it before, they're they're weaponizing this rhino, and they're his aunts. So what does that imply? It implies that one of them, if not both of them, are the siblings. ...of one of his parents who have been killed. They are not sensitive at all to the fact that the parents are dead. They almost seem happy that it happened. Because they talk... I, when they find the travel brochure, for example, they talk about the father. Oh, with always with his dreams, and always with this, and he was just a dream... And he was always thinking, and he wasn't realistic. And then they, they destroy the thing. It's almost as if they're happy that the parents are gone and now they have this boy that they have basically enslaved.
1: They remind me a lot and I'm I'm wondering how much J.K. Rowling was influenced by this story and Roald Dahl because, you know, they're both um you know, they're both English authors. So, I'm wondering if she was raised on this because they remind me a lot of the Dursleys in Harry Potter, how they've enslaved Harry. Um same thing, you know, it's it's the aunt, she was Harry's mother's sister um, so here we don't have that you know definitive relationship we just know it's the aunts um, but yeah they remind me of the Dursleys and they remind me of the stepsisters in Cinderella
0: I think that's yeah. just
1: by nature of them being sisters but also the um, you know when we first meet them there you know one of them's looking in a mirror talking about how gorgeous she is so that like you know delusional vanity definitely reminds me of Cinderella exactly
0: they think that they're beautiful, but meanwhile, they're ghoulish, they're completely pale, they have god-awful teeth.
1: And they're even uglier on the inside.
0: Yes. But they believe they are beautiful. You know, and and, and they think that they are so much better than everyone else, and they're holier than thou. So there's so much influence drawn from so many different places here that I think that they're they're the perfect villains for this movie because even though the movie is inherently dark, it's still fairly lighthearted because they're evil, but they, they never really go over the top.
1: No, like they threaten to beat him, but you don't see it. Right. And enough happens where... I mean, obviously, they're going to get their comeuppance, but yeah, they, they definitely sort of toe that line where... They're all talk, and then, you know, they'll they'll get their due.
0: Like, comparing them to the stepsisters in Cinderella, right? Lady Tremaine, you know, she forces Cinderella to work in the house from dusk to dawn, doesn't feed her well. Same thing that happens here. However, she unleashes the stepsisters to destroy the dress. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't want them... She does not want her going to the ball. You never see anything like that happen here. They just keep him locked in the house so that he can't see the other children when the Peach is eventually made into a sideshow attraction. Or a roadside attraction, I should say. And they don't feed him well. They force him to work. But like you said... They threaten, but they never actually. We never see them abuse him.
1: Right. Because the difference with Cinderella is that the stepsisters are too stupid to do this on their own. Right. So you've got Lady Tremaine being the puppet master. These two don't have anybody, you know, giving them any direction. So the evil is on them. But really. They just don't want him to, to see bigger and better because they don't ever want him to leave. They want to enslave him forever. I think that's also part of it is they know that this is not going to last forever until he's old enough to, to actually up and leave them. Right. The difference
0: between Cinderella and James is that Cinderella is a strong character from the moment she gets on the screen. James... Not so much. It's it's not to say that he isn't eventually a very strong character. And James is likable from the beginning of the movie. And you can tell that he's got a great heart and he's got a powerful mind. He's got this great imagination. And he's obviously strong-willed because he's putting up with these two characters. But he is not quite as strong as Cinderella. The strength of James comes... As the adventure unfolds here. Right. But otherwise, you can actually draw a lot of comparisons between this and Cinderella. And I think that as we kind of fleshed more and more of this out, you're going to see that, for example, the insects that James befriends in the peach, I mentioned it when I was kind of going over the plot, they are insects that, have either lived in the house with Sponge and Spiker or on the property. Right. Miss Spider is a spider that James finds in his bedroom before you get the first musical number. And we're going to talk about the music in, in a little bit here. But he befriends a creature that is otherwise repulsive. Nobody likes having spiders in their house. But he takes her down from her web And he shows her, oh, let me show you things I've never shown anybody else. Mm -hmm. And it's the... The
1: birthday candle. The birthday
0: candle. And he kind of sings his, my name is James, and he tells his story and where he comes from and what he wants. And it's similar to Cinderella where she befriends the mice in the house. Right. That's a really good point. So this is a character... That is lonely, knows there's something better out there, but still has a big heart and is willing to invite in the rejects for a lack of better term. So I think that that's definitely somewhere where you can draw another comparison to Cinderella. Right. And then you've got giant peach, giant pumpkin. Exactly. Exactly. And even um, the ladybug, she said, I had to send all 300 of my children away because of Sponge and Spiker. So they they all have, the enemy of the enemy is my friend sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. They all come together to get away from Sponge and Spiker. Right. So um, I want to talk about some of these characters here. Because I know sometimes we like to talk about the plot and the script and then we go into the characters, but... Because this script and because this story, it's entirely character-driven. Sure. More so than most films. I want to get into them here. and Because a lot of it, too, I think that the script does play into the characters directly. For example, The Centipede. What I have appreciated about this movie in all the years I've been watching it, and I've been watching this movie since its release on VHS. So let's call it 23 years. I love the mix of child and adult humor. Yes. I have often said on this show that I appreciate when movies have the ability to do that because especially a lot of the early Walt Disney stuff, he was making family films. He wanted appeal to the adults and the children. And I think Disney got away from that for a little while, where they were making really just kids' movies. Right. And in the '90s, specifically, you started to see a swing back in the direction where you had family films that had adult humor in it—that's over the head of the kid, but the parents can appreciate it.
1: You, Toy Story is seen a lot in Toy the Story. The master
0: of it. No, Shrek is the master of it. Not a Disney film. Ooh. No, Shrek. I think thems fighting words. Shrek is a movie that you love as a 7-year-old and you love as a 27-year-old. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's like hilarious.
1: it is it is still funny.
0: It's yeah. still funny. Toy Story did it very well. This does it very well. And a lot of that comes from Mr. Centipede voiced by Richard Dreyfuss. I love Richard Dreyfuss in everything. But he brought so much to this character because there's a scene where, in the very beginning, after he... Now, he's a smart aleck, and he tells everybody, I'm from Brooklyn, and I'm this, and I'm this. And Richard Dreyfuss actually is from Brooklyn, so he's a perfect character, perfect casting for the character. But when he cuts the peach off the vine, or off the stem, I should say. The tree. Right, but he cuts the stem. He chooses yeah, the yeah, stem. Yeah, yeah, yeah cuts it off the tree. They roll down the hill. They're all kind of thrown together in a big group. And uh I think it was the grasshopper that said somebody pinched me. And he goes, "Yeah, I thought you were the spider." Yeah. And it's Richard Dreyfuss saying it to Miss Spider played by Susan Sarandon, who is also phenomenal
1: casting. And uh, I, I love the entire cast they put together here. The ladybug is Jane Leaves, who's probably best known for Frasier. Yeah. Um, but she's, she's great. She's a really talented voice actress. Um, what I love about the insects, too, is that even before, you know, you're really getting into the dialogue, I feel like they did a really good job of painting the picture of exactly who these characters are before we're really getting to know them.
0: Yeah. I think that the pacing of the movie is really good because they don't waste a lot of time with the useless backstory. It's a lot of quick dialogue, throwaway lines. You find out exactly who they are. You talked about the costuming before. Well, you see the grasshopper. Um, you could tell he's more elegant. He's more refined. He's got a monocle. Right. Miss Ladybug, she looks more like a grandmother than yeah. anything, but and she's she t- very maternal. And she's very maternal, but she's got her 300 children. Obviously, the the spider I su- I don't know if it's supposed to be a black widow spider, those are obviously very dangerous, but she has the French accent and she sort of the has beret. the 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 femme fatale. Yeah. look to her. So you don't really know if you can trust her or not and she is she is a predator. Mm-hmm. And she has the throwaway line when they're eating the peach of, "Oh, this is Better than ladybugs. Yeah. And Miss Ladybug goes, what? And she goes, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. And even back to another line from Richard Dreyfuss when he gets them lost and the grasshopper said, what's your latitude? What's your longitude? And and the centipede says, hey, that's personal. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I like most about the insects is that they serve as a means for James to boost his self-confidence. Because... When he tries to voice an opinion or an idea to Sponge and Spiker, they just, they're quick to shut him down. And they say, oh, the fish heads aren't good enough for you, and they're not good enough for anybody, but they're not good enough for you, and, and you think you're so much better, and blah, 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 and your father was a dreamer, and the, uh, and the rhino is going to come get you. But he's able to come up with ideas, and they're, for the most part, for the most part, they're immediately, great idea, James. Hip, hip, hooray. Good for James. You got us out of this situation. So that's where you kind of wonder, and obviously you find out that they're real at the end of the movie, but there is a time where you you don't know if they're real or are they just something in his head that he's using as a means to finally have his opinion, to finally have his say, to finally have a plan and see it through on his own because he's lived such a sheltered life under Sponge and Spiker that he's got sort of this creative energy and he's finally got a means to burn it all off.
1: Yeah, I like that we do get that definitive answer at the end of it because there was a moment watching this and, you know, I said we rented it as a child. It wasn't like such a mainstay throughout my childhood, but there was a moment where I'm watching this and I was like, wow, did Life of Pi just straight-up rip-off Roald Dahl. Um, but, you know, in the end, we do get that answer.
0: Yeah. No Richard and it's Parker not a here. Rip off. Yeah,
1: no, and it's not a rip-off.
0: Um, when they do roll off the cliff and uh, and down the hill, I love that they pick up the fence. Yeah. And that this fence is now like a spiral staircase on the outside of the peach, and it gives them a means of moving up and down the peach and a way of... They they kind of use it like it's a deck at yeah. times. Where they're kind of just sitting outside and hanging out. And especially there's that great scene with James and the Earthworm where he's got to tell the earthworm, You were you were such a big help in helping us rope those uh the seagulls. And he's like, What was he? I'm Wonderworm. I yes. think is what he says. So there's there's just a lot of great heart-to-heart dialogue between James and the insects where they're not only building him up he's building them up and again you're fleshing out this incredibly selfless character
1: yeah because he does get a one-on-one with each of them you know as they're traveling Um, but especially the point with the earthworm where you know he says um, you know that bit of wisdom that his father imparted on him about it really depends on how you look at things and you can look at them you know It's either glass half-empty or glass half-full. Right.
0: Um, You get a Jack Skellington cameo here. And the centipede even calls it out. He goes, it's not a skeleton. He says, it's a Skellington. You have to listen to it, because he says it kind of quickly. But he calls it a Skellington.
1: I don't know how I feel about that, honestly. Because, I mean... I'm always happy to see Jack Skellington because I love Nightmare. But I had to look up when this came out when I saw that because I didn't know if it was before. And, you know, this is just another thing that's part of Burton's quote unquote non-style where he's just reusing the, Because there's a million ways that you could draw a skeleton. This is obviously very specific. But this came out three years after Nightmare. And I was kind of like... It doesn't really feel like an Easter egg. It feels like, you know, Jack Skellington had 35 different faces, so you just grabbed one that you had lying around and stuck it in here. An
0: Easter egg would be if Jack Skellington was one of the background skeleton pirates. He is the leader of the pirates. He is the one who is guarding the compass. He is the first one that comes to life. It doesn't bother me that he's there, but even as a kid, I sort of wondered why Jack Skellington was in James and the Giant Peach.
1: Yeah, it it doesn't bother me really for this movie, although it is derivative. It bothers me more because of the world that Nightmare Before Christmas created. And it's like, which tree had the pirate ship on it that you went into, Jack? Right, yeah. Um... With all that being said, though, I like the scene. I like the idea of the shipwreck and the skeleton pirates. I think that all works, but I just wish it would not have been Jack because it's distracting.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'll agree with you there. It's not totally bothersome, but I've never really understood why he was in this movie. Going back to the first time I saw it. Let's move on towards the end of the movie here where they finally do arrive in New York and you see the rhino again. I love that the rhino is defeated when James says, you're not real, I'm not afraid of you. I love that you kind of get that question sort of answered as to whether or not this is an actual rhino or whether it's in his head. Clearly was something that was in his head. And you had seen them have to defeat the pirates. You saw them defeat the mechanical shark. How exactly were you going to defeat this rhino? I don't know how they would have been able to do it. I like that this is the approach that they took.
1: Yeah, no, and even then, I'm still thinking, well, the rhino was in his head. The whole thing must have been. He did this on his own. So until the insects actually show up on the seagulls a couple of moments later, and you do get that confirmation, I'm still thinking, you know, this was all just his elaborate way of... of, getting to New York and seeing his father's dream through.
0: Yeah, I like the stand-up to your fear aspect. It's very Green Lantern-ish. Definitely. Um, And I like that, in spite of it all, he is cut loose from the seagulls, and he does end up on the top of the Empire State Building. However, and I'll overlook it, that is not where the Empire State Building is. No. In Manhattan. No. The way that they make it look is that it is downtown, by the water. It's not where it is at all.
1: No, and that has nothing to do with the way that New York has since been built up because like you said before, this was, you know, it was a period piece. So there weren't as many skyscrapers back then, um, but that has nothing to do with it. it. The Empire State Building is not in the harbor. No, but
0: we'll overlook it. Um, the, uh, the police officer that helps him out is from Dumb and Dumber, which I love as well. He's not the police officer from Dumb and Dumber. He's another character from Dumb and Dumber, and uh, the name will come to me eventually.
1: Um, but he reminds me of, like, every police officer in every 90s movie, though.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, well, he's definitely the the police officer from every 90s movie, the police officer uh, that was caricatured from... New York in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah, yeah, with a
1: really thick accent that does nothing but drink coffee and eat donuts.
0: Exactly. Um, I also love that Sponge and Spiker drive to New York. Yeah. It's so funny.
1: It's almost like they uh, they traveled by map, like yes. in the Muppets, because yeah. they come up soaking wet, and she's picking a crab out of her dress.
0: Yeah, and it's got it's covered with seaweed.
1: Yeah, it it does seem like they, they drove through the water. Yeah, it's just kind of
0: that whimsical comedy that you're accustomed to by this point in the film because there's a lot of that going on here.
1: It's weird, but it still works.
0: Yeah, the old man from the beginning of the film that gives James the bag of crocodile tongues reappears. You don't know that it's him right away because they kind of have him in silhouette. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was the one that said, let the boy speak when nobody wanted to listen to him and when nobody wanted to believe him when he was telling them about
1: his travels. Or about his life with his aunts and why he didn't want to go back. Because even when they pull out the axes and go after James, it still doesn't seem like everybody believes him.
0: Well, that's the other thing, too. I, I understand they needed to get a means to an end where Sponge and Spiker needed to be exposed for what they really were. And I, I guess it sort of makes sense because they were not so subtly losing their patience more and more and more as he was exposing them for what they really were and as he was telling them or telling the story of how they treat them,
1: and, and they wanted the peach back more so than James,
0: right? So you could sort of them. You could sort of see them becoming more and more unhinged to the point where they just grab the axes because now they've lost their minds. However, if they're trying to paint a picture that is the opposite of what James is telling people about being abusive, I don't know that grabbing an axe and swinging it at him and the police is the means of changing anybody's opinion.
1: Yeah, they definitely didn't do themselves any favors. And it's like, at that point, I'm sitting there waiting. I know this is supposed to be a caricature of the cop, but like, this is New York's finest. Anybody else would have been arrested on the spot. But what I do love is not only that James is the one to give them their comeuppance, they blend the stop motion with the live action, and it's so seamless, and it looks so cool. It does,
0: yeah. Because now the insects have come back,
1: and they're life size.
0: They're life size, and it's New York, so no one is really that concerned about it because it's probably the third offensive, the third, the the third most offensive thing anybody has seen that day in Manhattan.
1: Yeah, and and the second craziest thing they've ever seen on top of the Empire State Building. So first being King Kong. <laughs> yeah. So now. uh they
0: use the spider web to wrap them up and the cop, get them out of (laughs) here. It's it's cliche, but it's still perfect. And then you get another great reporter pan.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) It's not quite Iron Will. Nothing will ever be Iron Will. You're a genius. (laughs) But yeah, you do get Three uh, three journalists, and each of them gets to deliver their headline. Little Lindy flies a peach <laughs> over the big pond
0: and his peach pit pals. <laughs> it's not quite as good as Iron Will, but it's still fantastic.
1: But again, that's, I think, a play on when this was supposed to take place. Yeah. With that... You know, we, we we were just missing a twenty three skidoosh in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because we just talked about newsies recently as well. So we we've gotten very into this
1: like period piece newspaper. <laughs> but even Denton didn't do that in newsies.
0: Very true.
1: And and I mean they're they're the ones who were they're selling the paper, as they say. They weren't yeah. crying out the headlines in that manner.
0: Yeah. Um, I think it's a great ending that James just lets everybody eat the peach because as the centipede points out, it's not going to keep forever. And now they they have taken the the pit and this is their new home. I suppose it's in Central Park. I guess. I don't they know. Do, they do say it is all right, in right, Park, It is yeah. in Central Park. And James becomes basically a celebrity because he just sits there and tells his story over and over again. But they, they all live together and they all go on to have their own successes. Um,
1: yeah, then you get some more newspaper headlines where, you know, the ending music starts to play, the, the music that eventually takes you out into the credits, but the spider opened up a nightclub, the glowworm is in the Statue of Liberty. Um, so everybody, you know, sort of goes on to do something that was just very fitting of the characters.
0: And what I think I like most of all about the way the movie ends is that you see the old man one more time. They call him the old man, but he's really not that old. Um he comes a a final time and he breaks the fourth wall Yeah, because he has kind of come in and out as a narrator as the movie's gone on. Uh, They don't rely on him very much, only a little bit, but when you do get a narration, it's him. And then he comes back and he goes, James wanted a means to tell his story of how he defeated the rhino, escaped his ants and started his new life. And he breaks the fourth wall, he goes, and that's exactly what he's done for you. So I love that they not only have told a complete story, but they really do a nice job of tying it up. And basically, you now know that you didn't just watch a movie played out on screen. You saw from the, from the minute the movie starts, it's, it's all James's endgame.
1: I think that's kind of a cool thing that they did to to tie the book back in because I feel like that is a Roald Dahl thing because Matilda ends the same way. Danny DeVito is the narrator, which I always thought was kind of weird because he's the villain in that story. I mean, as much as I like Danny DeVito as an actor and I think it works for him to voice it, they do tie Matilda up in the same way. So I'm thinking... Um, I haven't read the book James and the Giant Peach, so I'm not sure if it if if that's how it ends, but I have to imagine that that's why they they would leave it in there like that
0: yeah it but it's a complete story mm-hmm. and I love how this is just i I said it before, and I'll say it again. I love how you are now. It's as if you were sitting with those kids in front of the Peach Pit listening to James's story. It's it's just a full circle, complete story moment, as good as any that have been told, I think, you know, especially in recent history.
1: No, and I think because there are things that happen that are so far-fetched, like the rhinoceros, you know, like the shark, like landing on top of the Empire State Building, you know, of course, we're being asked to suspend our disbelief, but I like that. I think tying it up at the end, it it obviously gives you closure, but it makes everything seem slightly less absurd.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the music here. Starting Now, this was Randy Newman who did the music for this film, and he slaughtered it. Yeah. He absolutely killed it. Randy Newman... A lot of you are familiar with his work because he's done so many iconic films, specifically for Disney. He wrote the music for Toy Story. Um, And, I mean, I I think that this is some of his best work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of surprising that Danny Elfman didn't do this one because, I mean, he's done every Burton you can imagine, except for this. But... I almost think it might have been a touch too whimsical. I agree. If they had gone with Danny Elfman. I think Randy Newman was perfect.
0: Yeah. Because what Randy Newman has accomplished, especially when you compare the music of James and the Giant Peach to the music of Toy Story. Um, take the song My Name is James. Um it's a beautiful song, but it's terribly heartbreaking. Mm. It fleshes out James's life. It fleshes out his entire story. Um, and, and and I apologize because I'm probably getting the title wrong. In fact, I'm almost positive I'm getting the title wrong. I think that you can compare that song to uh, Toy Story. The what Buzz is Lightyear. I, I will fly no more.
1: I think is the title of that of that song yeah the the scene in sid's house where he's on the stairs and he's trying to get to the window exactly i think that
0: um those songs are very similar in their tone they're similar in the message and they're
1: similar in the heartbreak
0: well that's exactly what i was going to say they they tug at the heartstrings and they accomplish the same goal i think that the reaction that you have as the moviegoer is exactly the same when you hear either of those songs.
1: Yeah, I mean, with Buzz, it's such a turning point in the movie, and it makes you feel so bad that he can no longer believe his delusions. But, I mean, here, it's a different story because it's a, you know, it's a child who's, you know, his childhood has been completely stripped away from him. Um, I remember as a kid... I will go sailing no more. That's it. Um, I couldn't think of it either. I, um... I remember as a kid thinking that my name is James was just so repetitive because that's really all that he says. But looking at it now, I think it's so smart because it's really all he has is his name. Yeah. Because he doesn't have a long history with his parents. He he doesn't have anything to himself really other than his name. So it just drives that home.
0: And then the next song you get is That's the Life. And this is actually the thing that I remember most from this film. I love how upbeat it is, especially coming out of a song like My Name is James. But this is where the movie starts to take a tonal shift Mm -hmm. where it's it's just that group of friends. It's the six of them now on the peach. They're no longer having to deal with the constraints of uh, Sponge and Spiker, the threat of Sponge and Spiker, um, they're sort of free to do what they want and to explore their own ideas and explore what their own goals are. And they don't really... I mean, they, they have hurdles ahead of them, but just to get away from two people that are so inherently evil and threatening... I love that this is the song that they use to kind of make the film a little bit more fun and a little bit more lighthearted and upbeat.
1: That, and for me, it's really all about the character development, too, because, you know, I talked about it before where they're, they're set up with the accents and the costumes, but the song really drives home exactly who they are because they're talking about their ambitions and what they want once they get to New York, which eventually, you know, they deliver on at the end in the newspaper headlines. Eating
0: the Peach is the song that they sing while they are, you guessed it, eating the peach. And they're taking the peach and they're making different things out of it and the grasshopper... He throws it in a vat and he stomps on it like he's stomping wine, and they kind of make it into. I, I, it's got a foamy head and it's in, uh, you know, a beer stein, so I guess it's supposed to be beer. I don't really know what it is. Um, so, I, I don't really
1: know how you ferment a peach, but
0: you can. It just wouldn't be immediate. Um, yeah. <laughs> again, we'll overlook that. In spite of the fact that the lyrics of this song are absolutely revolting and disgusting. Yeah. Um, because they are. Um. It's still very clever. It's still a lot of fun. I think it fits the movie. It fits the characters.
1: I want to talk about the peach for a second because we really haven't. And I think this is obviously the song that showcases it the most. I mean, obviously it's what you're singing about, but I want to talk about how they created this peach because when you first see it and it grows, I think they did a really good job of, you know, they gave it that peach fuzz. Mm -hmm. So it looks very realistic. Um, but now they've really started to have some fun with it because you get a lot of that like squelching noise that, yeah. you know, I imagine being on the inside of a peach. That's that's really all it is, because they're for the most part, they're like in the pit. So it's not until about halfway through the movie, they all get hungry and it's like, hey, we're we're on a peach. We can eat this thing. Um so that's kind of how this number kicks off, and that's why they eventually turn it into beer. And you know they're making all these different dishes, but I feel like this is where they had the most fun with like the texture and the sound effects. So I think they did a really good job of making the peach look very realistic.
0: Yeah, I think the animation and the stop motion throughout this entire film we we've talked about it before. It's seamless. I think it's absolutely amazing, and I agree with you. This is probably where it's showcased the best. Mm -hmm. in that particular it
1: even like it just looks sticky yeah they just did a really good job of it
0: family is the last song that they sing together it's another upbeat song but it has showed how close they have all become because keep in mind when the movie started and they all got together they were not all that close the centipede for a lot of them, was a highly questionable character. A lot of them didn't like his attitude. He didn't really like them. He was more than flirty with the Spider, who was certainly very standoffish. But as they have escaped Sponge and Spiker, and as they have defeated the Mechanical Shark, and as they have defeated the pirates and now they've made their way to New York and they've appreciated it as James has really brought them together because James is the glue that really holds the family together. Um, there's been so much character development as the movie has gone on that I feel like this was the perfect song to tie up how th- this is exactly what they are now. They are now
1: a family. This is, I think the most memorable song from the film. Cause I, re- I remember this from the trailer. Yes. So this was like the big takeaway, and I think this is probably the song with the strongest message in the film.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ready to move on to a final synopsis here? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to bat lead off on this one um, because usually I let you go first, but as I said, I wore the VHS out. Admittedly, I had not watched this movie for a long time. Not due to lack of interest, it's just that I didn't have a DVD copy or a Blu-ray copy. I don't have a working VCR right now. So this was one that kind of fell to the back burner. So revisiting it this week, I was afraid. I was afraid that the movie that I loved so much as a kid was not going to hold up. I loved Blank Check as a kid. I still love Blank Check because when I watch it, and I mentioned it on the show when we reviewed that, that film, when I watch that movie, I watch that movie through the eyes of a seven-year-old. And I remember the feelings that it emoted out of me when I was a kid. And that's partly why I still love the movie. But the movie does not hold up. And I wondered, what was my reaction going to be to this? Because I hadn't seen it in so long. It's almost upsetting to me now that the film is forgotten about. Because I think the film holds up I think the songs hold up. I think the stop motion holds up. I think the story holds up. But I think the movie had a time. And I do think that time has passed. I don't think this is a movie that you will see like a goofy movie that saw a second life. I think the life that this movie lived is the life that it had. I think that. For those who grew up with the movie, who were of the proper age to appreciate the movie when it came out, I think we will always enjoy it. I think a lot of us would show, you know, at least when I say us, I mean our generation. I think a lot of us would show the movie to children, whether it's your own kids or nieces or nephews or in a classroom or what have you. But in spite of the fact that the movie holds up incredibly well for so many reasons... I don't think it's ever going to have that second life. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it's ever going to.
1: I was going to say, I I definitely agree with you and I hope you're wrong. And I'm hoping that because of Disney plus, this is going to be one of those things that people stumble upon. I think if you're a Burton fan, you're going to know about it. You're going to appreciate it. You know, just as far as it being as good as nightmare with, with the stop motion. Um, I'm hoping that it being a, an adaptation that people maybe are somewhat familiar with the title. If they are familiar with Roald Dahl's work, maybe they stumble upon it that way too. But I agree with you. I don't think a lot of people now know that there is a film adaptation of this story because as you said, it's, it's been, you know, kind of forgotten about. Um, but I definitely think it holds up, you know, it certainly reminds me um at one point of how much I loved and appreciated Burton's work because his early stuff was absolutely phenomenal. I still do think it's phenomenal, but Alice in Wonderland just still leaves such a bad taste in my mouth that yeah. and, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory too. Even though that's not a Disney movie, you know, that's that's another doll adaptation that he did, and it was awful. Um, so I think this was kind of, you know, just a nice refresher for Burton um just to look at it now but you know it it is one that I kind of fell victim of it too is that you know I liked it as a kid but it didn't really stay with me and that's not to say that it doesn't have rewatchability it's just not something that was ever really in the forefront sure And I hope that Disney does more, um, you know, especially with the anniversary coming. I mean, next year will be the bigger anniversary. So I'm hoping that, you know, D23 does something. I would love to see, too, if they have it. um, We had gone years ago. They had Burton's, a bunch of his props and costumes and memorabilia on display at MoMA. I would love to see Disney do something like this, to have it on display, you know, either in the parks or, or have some sort of traveling exhibit for it and d 23 yeah yeah, yeah yeah they've
0: done that sort of traveling archive before yeah yeah i would like to see it i i would like to see them sort of put this movie back on the spotlight we're interested to know what you all have to say about it um did you grow up with the movie? Has the movie held up for you? Is this the first time you saw the movie? What is your review? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Moving on to news this week, because we did actually get quite a bit of news this week, starting with some news about Bob Iger and Bob chapek
1: Yeah, this is uh, really impressive. Just to keep everything afloat and to be able to pay the employees while we're on hiatus here um bob Iger, you know was doing even though he has stepped down he's doing two years with the company still to sort of pass the baton over to chapik um so he he is not getting paid for his time anymore. Um, he forfeit his salary, uh, to stay on. And, um, and, and, and
0: it's like $47 million. It's not chump change folks.
1: Yeah. And, and this is, you know, I have to imagine what he's going to retire off of because he is stepping down and, um, Chappick is taking half at this time.
0: Yeah. Um, we also found out that basically the entire release slate for Disney has shifted. um, basically it's everything
1: yeah um i'm probably most disappointed that we have to wait more than another year for jungle cruise now uh black widow was supposed to come out in may that got pushed back to november 6th Yeah, i Um, have all of the dates here did did we get a mulan date
0: mulan yeah so soul got pushed to june 19th and, and listen, there's a chance. Now, I want to I interject something here. There's a chance that these release dates are going to get pushed again. Soul mm. might get pushed right to Disney+. Plus. They haven't said that per se, but I want to put something on people's radars. Because we have the AMC Stubs program. Mm-hmm. And news came out yesterday. And again, I, I hate to just speculate, but there's rumor that AMC may never reopen again and they just opened a brand new AMC with full service restaurant, waiter service, a bar 10 minutes from our house.
1: We were loving it.
0: We were going no less than twice a week to the movies. We loved it.
1: Cuz we we had movie pass. Back when movie pass was good and it worked, we were totally able to take advantage of it. We were going sometimes twice a week to the movies.
0: But apparently And this does have an effect on Disney, too, because you have the AMC at Disney Springs. AMC's credit has crashed since this whole thing happened. Now, supposedly, AMC was going to be closing their theaters until mid-June. Now they're saying that AMC has shifted their open date to the fall, if they even open again. AMC might go out of business because of this. So I, I feel like that's worth mentioning because when I look and I see that Soul is supposed to come out on June 19th, but you've got movie theaters like AMC, major nationwide chain, that at the earliest, in the best case scenario, was only going to reopen in mid-June and now not, may not reopen to the fall. I don't know that June 19th for a theatrical release is realistic at this point. I I hate to say that because as we sit here on April 7th, I hope that by June 19th this is a thing of the past, but if movie theaters are already thinking that they're not going to reopen until the earliest mid-June or July, I just don't know how this date is feasible. I think Soul is going to end up going to Disney Plus.
1: Well, here's the thing because you know, we mentioned a couple of the big movies, the other big one is Artemis Fowl and they announced that that is going straight to Disney Plus here's my take on it just being you know I'm not in the film industry I'm in the television industry but it's we're sort of being affected in the same way um what's happening now even though everybody is home and there is such a demand for content because people are binge watching shows you know movies are being released for streaming even not just Disney like Universal's doing it they're they're just putting it out there so people have something to watch which you know is is a nice gesture to get people through a difficult time but the snowball effect that this is having is not the demand for content now it's that Production is getting hit because production falls under social distancing as well. You can't have a crew together. You can't have actors. You you just can't do it. It's impossible. So what we're going to see now is not just the slate of movies be pushed back because you cannot have a movie theater audience together. Anything that was supposed to be produced this year to come out next year is now also getting pushed back. I think that's why Jungle Cruise got pushed so far is because companies and and not just Disney are going to be so desperate to make up those box office numbers because this is going to have a snowball effect into next year. They have to, you know, sort of stack their slate so that something carries them through. So they're, you know, they're in the black for next year, too.
0: Yeah. And it's it's everybody. I was heartbroken to find out that my beloved Ghostbusters afterlife that I've been waiting for since 1990 got pushed. I could understand them wanting to shift it back until Halloween. They pushed it back to next March, so almost a year. So, you know, this is, like you just said, it's not a Disney thing. This is an an industry-wide thing.
1: I was heartbroken about that, too, as you will be as well, listeners, because we're going to hear about this for another year.
0: Mulan, July 24th. That's the new date for Mulan. Uh, Black Widow, you said november 6th Raya and the last dragon november 25th i don't think I don't that, think that changed. changed i think west, that was always thanksgiving yeah west side story december 18th i don't think that changed um let's see here you know what actually Do you know what i'm looking for right now and i'm not seeing it the new mutants New Mutants might not ever get released.
1: (laughs) That was just doomed from the start.
0: Uh, Cruella, May 28th, 2021. I don't think that changed. Jungle Cruise. That movie
1: is bopped around, though. That got moved up, I think. Yeah,
0: it's all over the place. They probably
1: broke even with that by now.
0: Jungle Cruise, July 30th, 2021.
1: See, that I understand now, though, because Mulan was pushed, so now we have our big summer release besides Onward. Mm -hmm. Or, I'm sorry, not Onward, um... Soul. Soul. Um, So now they have their big summer release for next year.
0: Yeah. Uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, November 5th, 2021. Avatar 2, uh, December 17th, 2021. Thor Love and Thunder, February 18th, 2022. I think that did get pushed. Captain Marvel 2, July 8th of 2022. Indiana Jones 5, July 29th. So basically, and now you have an untitled Star Wars film, December 16th, 2022. I don't think that's any different than what it was, though. So basically, from now till 2022, you've seen movies shift. You've seen movies change. I mean, is it crazy to think that six months from now, a year from now, we live in a world where movie theaters are a thing of the past? Is that crazy? I think that's slight. I, some people think that it's going to happen. I think that that's slightly insane.
1: Um, I was concerned about it before this even happened with, with what streaming was going to do to the industry. Honestly, um, I think that too many studios were relying on these big blockbuster movies. And because you don't have those middle of the road movies anymore, other than really around Oscar time, you can't survive on that.
0: So so are you thinking then that movie theaters are a thing of the past?
1: I mean, I definitely think that coronavirus has escalated a growing problem. I don't want to say that they're a thing of the past. I think that they're starting to try and combat that with things like Cinepolis, or what they're doing with amc and putting the restaurants in there and making it a whole theater going experience the way that it once was when theaters first opened like you used to go and get dressed up to go to the movies the way you would a broadway play well now people don't even dress up for broadway anymore but it used to be such a big event so i'm wondering you know if the way to save it is to sort of come full circle and make it a whole you know, a whole night thing, yeah right? yeah and
0: I, yeah well like you said that's what they're trying to do I feel bad for all of these people you know this movie theater by us it only opened in November it opened I think it opened the week that we were in Disney world mm-hmm. and we came back and it it was open so it was only open for a couple of months and you've got people that's their livelihood it's their job for some of them they left other jobs to take that on uh, you know it's 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 a shame. I hope it does reopen. And even if AMC doesn't reopen, I would find it hard to believe that, like you said, a Sinopolis or a Regal or somebody doesn't just buy. It is literally a brand new theater with a brand new kitchen, brand new seats, brand new screens, brand new bar, everything. I would be astonished if it just never saw the light of day again. And I hope that that's not the case. But you guys can let us know how this is affecting you. Are you an AMC employee? Do, you know, have you received any information? Are you AMC Stubbs program members like us? What do you think is going to happen to the movie going experience? Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Thank you for those who tuned in for our. Uh, streaming party this past Sunday. We watched Onward and gave our commentary on Onward. We had a lot of fun with that. We're going to be doing it again, actually, uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks here. Uh, Saturday, uh, Saturday, December. I don't even want to think about December right now. Saturday, April 18th at 7 p.m. on Facebook Live. We're going to be doing another streaming party where we... Review and discuss Waking, Sleeping Beauty, which we did do on episode number 13, and Randy Cartwright joined us, so if you guys want to go back and listen to that interview, feel free. You can go back and listen. Um, She coughed. Get away from me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, back to your regularly scheduled programming here. You can go back and listen to the interview, um, like I said, episode 13, but uh, we're going to go ahead and do that um, and sort of give our live commentary, which is sort of interesting because this is a movie that we know very well. We've seen it a lot. We're not going to give you the story about the cruise line thing again and how we saw the movie. We told the story a dozen times on the show, but it's something we're very familiar with. So we're really interested in kind of being able to spend a little bit more time, I think, interacting with people live because we can kind of half watch the movie and keep an eye on the computer screen. And uh, we're going to do that, like I said, 7 p.m. on the 18th of April, Facebook Live, Keep an eye out on the social media for the event. We're going to go ahead and create that probably later today, and you guys can RSVP there. Um, Don't forget to subscribe to Monoreal Radio on your podcast platform of choice and to leave us a review on either your podcast platform of choice or on facebook the reviews are greatly appreciated again thank you all so much for jackie i'm sean have a magical week everyone on behalf of monoreal radio we'd like to thank you for joining us we'll see you at the movies the stuff dreams are made of